Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted again to talk to Dr. Abdul Wahid. You are most welcome, sir. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa Paul and audience. <laughs> Dr. Abdul Wahid is currently the chairman of the UK Executive Committee of Hizbutaria in Britain. He has been published on the websites of Foreign Affairs, Open Democracy, The Times Higher Educational Supplement, and Prospect magazine. You can follow him on Twitter at Abdul Wahid HT, and he's on many platforms these days. I know some TikTok and other places, YouTube as well. Today is the 11th of December. This is the exact date in 1917 when British General Edmund Allenby entered Jerusalem. He was the first Christian in many centuries to control the holy city. The Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, David Lloyd George, described the capture as, quote, a Christmas present for the British people. Can you believe that? A Christmas present for the British people. Dr. Wahid has kindly agreed to do a presentation about the historical context of this military occupation and why knowing about it is so important for understanding today's terrible events. So over to you, sir. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, salatu wa salam ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa manuela. So Paul, if you recall a, a while back, we had actually talked about maybe doing something on the anniversary of the Balfour Declaration, but yeah. that fell in November. And as we know, the last two months have been horrific for the people in Gaza and Palestine and for the Muslim world watching on and anyone with a just mind and a clean heart looking at what's happening over there. But um, I think on this anniversary, it, it is worth addressing some of the context, some of the historical context, which a lot of people miss out. And it will help, I hope, inshallah, our audience um, understand things, certain things today and why they happen. Um, I have some slides which I hope to share. Okay. Um, a lot of them are for me as an aid memoir. But, um, like before, maybe we can share the link to the slides afterwards on the uh, on the comments section, um, as we did in my previous presentation. So the fall of Al-Quds was on the 11th of December, 1917, 106 years ago. And as you say, David Lloyd George, the then Prime Minister of Great Britain, uh, described it as a Christmas present to the British people. Um, and this is a very famous photograph of Edmund Allenby walking into the city of Al-Quds through the Jaffa Gate. With, uh, and he insisted on walking in on foot. Uh, it was, uh, if you like, uh, in mimicry of Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab, an, who came in famously on foot, uh, but also uh, in deference of knowing that he was occupying a holy city. And many of the troops that had been asked to form the occupation force came from colonial India, colonized India, and they would have included Muslims as well. So this uh, act of humility, in quotes, was also very carefully understanding the political reality that he was entering. So what I hope to cover is what the significance of the fall of Jerusalem was at the time and how it came about 
and that there are two conflicting and overlapping aims that play out today and till today and that is the aims of zionism a political uh, philosophy which effectively ethno-nationalistic it's a it's a political philosophy that that uh, believes that the jewish people as a race have the right to occupy a homeland and that homeland should be in historic palestine uh, and on the other hand colonialism that this a lot of this came about in an era where britain was the dominant colonial power um, and that powers like britain and france had an interest in occupying the Middle East uh, for their own colonial interests. And that has really passed on dominantly to the United States since it became the dominant colonial power in the world. So what, what, what those two overlapping agendas are, how they form the context for the occupation of Jerusalem and how they play out until today. So what happened after the fall of Jerusalem and how this affects our understanding today? So a lot to cover. Yep. As I say, a lot of my slides are aid mem uh, aids for myself to remember. So let's go to some background. Uh, prior to World War I, uh, the dominant power in Palestine was the Ottoman Khilafah. Uh, Palestine formed part of the territories of the Ottoman Khilafah. Uh, and this, rough, this map, map roughly outlines the extent of the Ottoman Khilafah in, in Europe and in the region that's commonly Turkey and what is commonly known as the Middle East and North Africa. And these photographs are from the tail end of the Ottoman Khilafah, end of the end of the 19th century, but beginning of the 20th century. This is a man who in the photographs that I found online is described as a Yemeni Jew. And these are Jewish women worshiping at the Burak wall, which they call the Western wall, of the Masjid al-Aqsa, but we call the Burak wall. Um, and I think they're extraordinary photographs, because if I hadn't told you that these were Jewish citizens in the Ottoman Khilafah, you might mm. wonder if these were Muslims, because culturally, uh, Muslims, Jews, Christians living in the Khilafah in those days were not really very different to each other. They mm. had different beliefs, they had different worships, but culturally, the way they dressed, the way they behaved in public spaces, uh, was very similar to each other. Mm. Meanwhile, in Europe, the situation Europe. for Jewish people was very different. Mm. Um, this montage of images is quite important for our audience to understand. Mm. On the left side, uh, we have um, basically... This is a photograph of an act of parliament called the Alien Act of 1905. The prime minister at that time was none other than Arthur Balfour, who was later foreign secretary um, and the signatory to the Balfour Declaration, which we'll talk about shortly. The Alien Act was, for those of you who are in Britain, you'll understand this, was effectively the stop the boats policy of 1905. So there were Jewish people in Europe, particularly in Eastern Europe, in Poland, in Russia, who were really, really horrendously persecuted by the dominant powers. And they would often try and flee uh, their persecution in Eastern Europe. And they would come west and try and find refuge 
in Western European countries, including Britain. Balfour passed a law called the Alien Act, which was effectively trying to stop Jewish migration to the UK. Okay, what I would say sounds like a pretty anti-Semitic policy, um, but is very consistent with the kind of right-wing policy that we see today. And these are images of the kinds of people that were trying to find refuge in those days. Uh, the bottom slide here in the middle section is a book, which is book title is called The Alien Jew in the British Imagination, 1881 to 1905. So a book that describes the fact that these people, although they're European, were seen as foreigners by the British. And a public demonstration in 1902 by, to be addressed by Major Evans Gordon MP, which was um, uh, talking about, um, you know, th this mass migration of people that they were concerned about. So effectively a stop the boats policy, mm -hmm. a kind of anti-immigrant policy. Across in mainland Europe, in the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, there was a legal case in France which effectively shook Europe, um, mm. uh, called the Dreyfus Affair. Um, now, Captain Dreyfus was a French citizen. Uh, he was a Jewish man. Uh, and there had been indications that there was a spy in the French army spying for the Germans. And Dreyfus was accused of this. And he had basically a sham trial where the, the army high command pretty much knew he was innocent by the time he stood trial. And yet they threw the book at him, humiliated him, and sent him to Devil's Island to be an isolated prisoner, to be kept on that island for years. It was Until a very famous Hollywood movie. It was made uh, of that, actually. I forget who the two actors are, but they're very famous. So, um, so it's made a big cultural and, and movie impact as well, this, this whole event. Uh, with him. It, yeah. it was it was a huge impact, and a lot of his treachery was in in the popular media was that he was a Jew, basically, yeah. and, right. and 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 then when he was he was made found innocent, so you can see these headlines: uh, Dreyfus un traitor, traitor. I think that's how you'd say it, and Dreyfus innocent. And mm -hmm. in fact, um, a lot of the 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 military blocked all kinds of ways of of challenging their decision, it, eventually there was a civil case brought which allowed the evidence to be aired in public because it was all in secret courts before. And when it was aired in public, the public was so shocked. And even though the verdict went against Dreyfus in that case, the, um, the, the French writer, Emile Zola, he wrote a French page headline, Jacques, which was famously accusing the French Republic of this uh, carriage of uh, miscarriage of justice. Um, so this is the situation for Jews in Europe, very different it, to the Islamic world. Mm. So that's the background of how this idea of Zionism comes about, where, where uh, some Jews in Europe, mainly secular Jews, non-religious Jews, um, wanted to start a movement which would... Um, uh, argue that they need a homeland somewhere, and their preferred homeland was Palestine, right? But um, it wasn't exclusive to Palestine. There were times when they were negotiating about Uganda. There were times when they were negotiating about a place in Argentina. And um, 
the, the founder of the Zionist movement was a lawyer, a Swiss lawyer uh, uh, called Theodor Herzl, who's this man on the left. He was followed by one of their main leaders, Chaim Weizmann, who was a migrant to the UK from Eastern Europe, who lobbied the British government very heavily in advance of the Balfour Declaration. And eventually, uh, the leader of the movement was David Ben-Gurion, who uh, was during the British uh, Mandate era in the 1930s, the leader, 1930s and 40s, first a military leader and then a political leader who eventually uh, led the movement on to usurping the land. Uh, Ben-Gurion, interestingly, was a friend of Ho Chi Minh, the Vietnamese leader, who promised the Jewish people a homeland in Vietnam. <laughs> okay, so uh, that was something I learned when researching for this. I've never heard, I must say I've never heard that before, I must say. Yeah, I know, it's, it's, it's true, true apparently. Vietnam doesn't quite seem, um, anyway, that's perception. But, but, but yeah, Ben-Gurion's Ben answer to Ho Chi Minh was that, and he was pretty sure, he was pretty hopeful that they would get Palestine. Right. Now, this is an important slide because... These guys were in the minority until about 1947 in terms of world Jewry. Okay? Yeah. They were secular, they were non-religious, they were nationalistic. They had more of a belief in Jews as an ethnicity rather than as a religion. But the majority of Jews until 1947 were either anti-Zionist or non-Zionist. And mm. The, this this is a, a very large demonstration of uh, Orthodox Jews in Eastern Europe, um, and uh, even even on a website called the Virtual Jewish Library, which is is from occupied Palestine, from the occupiers of, occupiers of Palestine, but it, it does have some quite useful historical information. They have said this position, meaning the anti-Zionist position, was adopted by the bulk of the Orthodox world well until. Uh, up until the United Nations vowed devoted to partition Palestine in 1947, but mm. it was the dominant view for Orthodox Jewry from a religious perspective to actively try and get back to the Holy Land before the Messiah comes. In their view, was a heresy, and for these for these secular Jews to be trying to push the agenda like that was a heresy. Mm. The, the other interesting thing about this for our Muslim audience. Uh, is this. Um, as the years went by, that orthodox position, people started shifting. So there is, uh, there were two, if you research into this, there were two very prominent orthodox heretic organizations that opposed this. One is still existent today called Netura Karta, okay, which means something like the guardians of the city. And they believe it's a heresy. And you, they are the, uh, the, the rabbis who you'll often see at demonstrations actively opposing Israel mm -hmm. and supporting the Palestinian cause and, mm -hmm. uh, and calling for the dismantlement of the Zionist state. Okay, And they've stayed very steadfast till today, and they are often attacked. And this image in the middle is the IDF persecuting uh, Jews who oppose Palestine in Palestine. And this is a demonstration of more, more recent years where they, those same uh, Jewish community in Palestine are opposing the fact that they're supposed to be forcibly conscripted into the IDF. 
Now, there are other organizations. This demonstration here was not actually organized by Natura Karta. It was organized by a group called Agudat Yisrael, which was founded in Poland, and they were anti-Zionist, but they still exist, and they exist in the Knesset, in the Israeli parliament. They have kind of morphed into a um, political party which um, agrees to work within the system whilst trying to kind of oppose things like uh, mandatory conscription and stuff. Um, but And they still acknowledge that probably its orthodoxy says that they shouldn't have a Zionist state, but they've just accepted it as the de facto position today. Why, why do I dwell on this? Because you and I, Paul, know that sometimes when Muslims take a very orthodox position on political matters, they're criticized for being impractical. Um, and when they kind of um, integrate into the system or partially use the corrupt non-Islamic systems that exist, they're, 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 they're kind of sometimes said, well, at least it's being practical. At least you're working within whatever means we have. But when you reflect this onto the Jewish community, there are a group of rabbis, a group of Jews who who absolutely oppose the, the, the oppression of the Zionist system. And they're basically saying, no, we are innocent of what they are doing and we condemn it. And there are others who've kind of play, played into working within the system and trying to do the best they can within the system who, who can't possibly uh, have that, um, that plea of innocence in the same way. So I think that's quite a noble thing for those people who who actually want to stay steadfast on their mm. religious beliefs and stick to their mm. principles. And when you see that same debate played out amongst the Orthodox Jewish community, as you sometimes see amongst Muslims, to me, it's quite it should be quite empowering for Muslims that we should stay quite steadfast on our beliefs. Uh, Herzl himself went to try and lobby the Ottoman Khalifa Sultan Abdul Hamid twice in 1896 and in 1901. Sultan Abdul Hamid's response is very famous. He yeah. said, I will not sell. He wanted to buy the land. He said, I'll not sell a single inch of the country because it's not mine. It belongs to all the Muslims. They paid for this empire with their blood and we will redeem it with our blood. Let the Jews keep their millions. If the empire is partitioned, they will get Palestine for free, but that will happen over our dead bodies. And, and a very sad and wow. um, amazing uh, words. Uh, words amazing quotes. And courage and principle uh, there. Uh, we often don't hear that today from our leaders. So remarkable words. Remarkable words. And what's all the more remarkable is even though he refused to sell the land, he still continued to allow persecuted Jews from Europe to settle in Palestine and other areas of the Ottoman Khilafah, okay, because he believed that they needed refuge and thousands would still come in because they faced persecution. But they were to be admitted on the Ottoman terms, not the terms of the, um, of the, uh, uh, of the buying the land. And he, he, he recognized there was a political danger in all of this. He really did. Uh, and that's that's a, a very important thing for us to understand about the, the uh, Abdul Hamid's uh, really extraordinary political vision, as well as his desire to help people who are in trouble, basically. And it also 
rebuffs this this uh, anti-Islamic trope that in Islam somehow you know Muslims can't deal can't live with Jews. Actually, the Ottoman Khilafah gave refuge to Jews fleeing uh, persecution from the Spanish Inquisition in the time of Sultan Bayezid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 so we have a great history which I hope Muslims would know, and inshallah will be a basis in the future for how we can live in the Holy Land. Yeah. Um, so, so there was lobbying in the Ottoman Khilafah, and there was lobbying in the corridors of power in Britain, in France, and in the United States. And these lobbies uh, bore fruit in a window of opportunity in World War One, as we will see. And some of the Zionists were radical; they had a vision that the whole of Palestine should be theirs, and that. Uh, they would dominate it and it would be an independent power on their own eventually. And some were practical and, uh, and, and pragmatic. And they knew they could never achieve this without the backing of one of the great colonial powers in the world. And they were willing to sell themselves as basically saying, we will be a colony for you in the future. Okay. And we will, we will be your bulwark of European civilization in the Middle East. So that is just a little brief background about Zionism. Um, And we'll come on to the second main force which drove the occupation of Palestine and fall of Jerusalem. And that was colonialism and that was World War I. So this map briefly outlines the main uh, powers that were on each side. So you have what is in black, what are commonly known as the allied powers, uh, and what is in, I suppose it's sort of orangey-brown, it's what's called the eastern powers or the axis powers, which was largely uh, Germany, as it was in in the early part of the 20th century, and the Ottoman Khilafah, and a few other countries in the world. And uh, this was the, actually... Lloyd George assumed power early in, in World War I, and uh, he reportedly wanted to make uh, the aim of having a powerful victory against the Ottomans one of his war aims, to destroy the Ottoman Khilafah as one of the war aims. And um, he called in uh, General Robertson, who was the head of the British Armed Forces then, and he also said he wanted the capture of Jerusalem as some kind of trophy um, for the British people. If I'm not mistaken, um, Prime Minister Lloyd George, I think, was, was a, a very committed Christian. Uh, apparently he used to read his Bible uh, every day, and he was a Zionist. I think he was a Zionist before Europe, Europe was Zionist. Um, so he, he was far from being neutral or, or independent. He he very much had certain objectives in mind. So yeah, Christian Zionism as well is a very strange phenomenon, um, but that's another subject. But I think I think he ba- he basically was a Christian Zionist, yeah. Evangelical Christian Zionist, he really yeah. had a problem with what he would call the Turk, which basically means the Muslims. Okay, yeah. Um, um, but yeah, he he had a problem with that from a personal level. Yeah. So what happened in World War One that led to the fall of Jerusalem? Well, the Ottoman state um, had been considered quite weak at this stage. It was it it had really gone from the dominant superpower for about 500 years to becoming 
one of many players on the world stage. So Britain, France, Germany, Russia, the Ottoman uh, mm. Empire were considered the great powers at the tail end of the, uh, the, well, the middle of the 19th century, the mid 1800s. By the end of the 1800s, the Ottoman state was seen as very weak. There were a lot of pred predictions that it would disintegrate. And um, Britain's key thinking on this was if this Ottoman state in the Middle East collapses and Germany rises as a power, the jewel in Britain's crown was India. And that would allow Germany to get a, potentially an opportunity or a rival, another rival, maybe Russia, maybe France, to take Britain's prized possession of India. So the idea of Ottoman policy used to be, the debate used to be, how, can we stabilize it or should we destroy it and try and occupy the regions? When World War I broke out, the Ottomans were um, expected to fall within a year, and they didn't. They were still going strong at the end of four years. So one of Britain's policies was to try and create insurrection within the Ottoman state. And they did this by recruiting this man on the left called Sharif Hussein. He was uh, known as the Sharif of Mecca. So he was the governor of Mecca under the Ottomans. He actually had a very good relationship with Sultan Abdul Hamid and the Ottomans prior to that. And then after the Young Turk Revolution in Istanbul, uh, which saw the, the fall of Abdul Hamid's Khilafah, and the Young Turks taking over, almost like having a constitutional leader in the Khalifa, he, he, he fell out with the Young Turks. So uh, a correspondence was started with him uh, by uh, Sir Henry McMahon, who was a British diplomat, um, which was kind of enticing him to rebel against the uh, Ottomans uh, and the Ottomani Khilafah, and he did this. He agreed to do this. I mean, he really was quite something of a traitor. There was a period of time when he was receiving funds from Istanbul and funds from the British wow. uh, all at the same time, basically. Um, and and he, the promise to him was that he would be king of the Arabs, basically. So he would have the whole of the Hijaz, Mecca and Medina. He would have Palestine, Al-Quds and Masjid al-Aqsa. He would have Syria and Baghdad. And what is today... Syria, Jordan, Palestine, Iraq, and parts of Saudi Arabia, basically. that He would be the king of all those areas. That was the promise to him. Um, so they incited that the, the British funded the Arab revolt, and uh, the, 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 they uh, recruited T. Lawrence, who was a British intelligence officer who spoke Arabic, to go in and try and mobilize the Arab tribes to fight against the Ottomans. Um, and uh, effectively, um, uh, many many of our audience would have seen the movie Lawrence of Arabia, yeah. um, and it, it gives a it gives a some idea of the tactics, uh, but obviously presents Lawrence as a bit of a hero in that. Um, it's an extraordinary. Uh, whatever you think about Lawrence of Arabia, he was uh, the film. Uh, uh, David David Lane, I think, um, is extraordinary movie. Uh, David Lean, yeah. Yeah, Lean. Yeah, well, one of the great movies of the twentieth century. Yeah, no, uh, de yeah, many, yeah. De definitely, definitely a, a great movie in terms of uh, of quality of film. But but 
Um, yeah. Actually, you can you can understand something if you look at it with a critical eye. You can understand something uh, of the history of what happened, um, and actually how the British were planning to stab Sharif Hussein in the back mm. quite early on. And Lawrence Lawrence in the movie is quite conflicted about this because he's the guy who's gone out to kind of recruit these Arabs, and he's been promising them all sorts. That's and right. his bosses are like saying, "Yeah, yeah, you go and promise them all of that." And then, but actually, in the end, they're not planning to deliver on any of that. This, by the way, is not the Palestinian flag. For anyone who's a bit confused, this is actually the flag of the Arab Revolt, um, designed by Sir Mark Sykes in uh, the in the uh, British Foreign Office, um, who uh, it is then become the basis of the flags of many of the Middle East countries. So if you look at many Middle East countries, Syria, Iraq, uh, Egypt, uh, and, and, and the Palestinian flag today, they all they, they incorporate these colours in slightly different designs. I think the actual Palestinian flag is, is just, I think a couple of these horizontal stripes are switched round into a slightly different colour scheme. Uh, but, but they're all based on colonial this colonial flag. So that's that's one thing that affected the fall of Jerusalem because actually one of the one of the terrible things that happened was the Ottomans were doing very well by 1917 when Jerusalem fell they were they were really managing to hold back the assault from Britain and France and the others and and then this other front opened and by Sharif Hussein opening this other front in the Hejaz Ottoman troops were diverted away from fighting the European powers. And that led to the fall of Jerusalem, the fall of Damascus, and the fall of Baghdad, and uh, and the loss of Mecca and Medina eventually. So uh, it, it was, it, if Sharif Hussein had not betrayed the Ottomans and the Muslims like this, uh, we probably never would have lost Jerusalem. The fact. Uh, they couldn't have done it without the internal betrayal. And that's an important lesson for us today. Because actually, uh, really, you know, uh, it's it's Sharif Hussein's grandchildren who are currently the kings of Jordan, um, and Jordan is currently the USA's supply route to supplying Israel with the bunker-busting bombs and arms that they're using to kill the Gazans today. They couldn't do it without the descendants of Sharif Hussein. Uh, it's a reality. So the second thing in World War One that kind of led to the situation we have today was an agreement between Britain and France um, agreed between two diplomats, uh, Sir Mark Sykes and Francois-Georges Picot uh, in 1916, commonly known as the Sykes-Picot Agreement, where uh, they decided after the war how they're going to divide up the Ottoman Empire. And they basically took, it's famously, they took the A from Acre in in uh in what is now jordan to the i think it was the um the k of kirkuk i think it was yeah i can't remember exactly but they drew a straight line and they basically said okay france you can have what's north of that line and britain will have what's south uh, and then in the shenanigans after the war britain wanted mosul because they knew there was oil in that region mm. uh, britain wanted palestine which was meant to be under international control because it was um uh, but so, but effectively, this is how the map of the Middle East was carved up uh, after World War One, and this is important because. Can I just share? You, you actually recommended this book to me a, a while yeah. ago. 
uh, a line in the sand, Britain, France and the struggle that shaped uh, the Middle East by uh, James Barr. I uh, highly recommend that is the story of uh, Sir Mark Sykes uh, and uh, Pico um, and this whole sorry story, which is a great uh, stain on um, on fr- French and British diplomatic relations, as has been omitted since then, I think. So I do recommend that book. I, I, I agree with you. It's a very informative book and people should read it. Okay. Let's just get the... Uh, yeah. Yeah. So why does this matter? It matters because effectively the the plan after the war was that the Middle East should be decided divided up into small little states never be allowed to function independently of uh, their colonial masters. They would be rulers implanted in those who would be decided by their colonial masters. And so the policy of those states would be dictated by their colonial masters. So when people say, well, how come Palestine has never been liberated by these countries that are on the doorstep? Well, it's because the countries that are on the doorstep never had it as their intention to liberate Palestine. Uh, in particular, Jordan, the descendants of Sharif Hussein, they were promised Palestine. So uh, King Abdullah, the first king of uh, Jordan, appointed by the British, was basically told, he was a son of Sharif Hussein, was basically told, you know, you'll basically, he wanted Palestine, he wanted the whole thing. Um, so when they fought wars in 1948 and then later, they didn't weren't fighting to help the Palestinian people save their land, they were fighting for their own interests, uh, not, not for the Palestinian people. And that's a very important thing to understand. And to this day, none of these countries really operates outside of the control of the world's great powers. The next issue that came up was in 1917 Mm. Balfour Declaration the man on the left is Arthur Balfour the one who I said was Prime Minister during the Alien Act, the Stop the Boats policy of 1905 um, who writes this letter addressed to Lord Rothschild who was a very leading Zionist in Britain at that time um, conveying uh, a pledge um, that uh, the British government would view with favour the establishment of a homeland for the Jewish people in Palestine. Uh, And famously, he said that nothing should be done to prejudice these civil and religious rights rights of the existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, which was obviously rubbish. That that never happened. They were all all prejudiced from very early stage. Um, there's uh, There's a lot of background to why Britain did this. Um, we're three years into the war now. Britain thought they were going to, they should have won by now, but they hadn't. Um, America had not entered the war by this stage. So they, there was no one to really help drive a decisive victory. Um, so by lobbying, uh, by, 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 by deciding that they were going to make this pledge, one of the theories was it would uh, entice America into the war uh, with the help of the uh, Zionist lobby within the United States. That was one thinking. Um, another thinking was that there really would be an opportunity to, uh, after the war, have a British colony in Palestine. And wouldn't it be good if that was populated by 
the Jewish people from Europe rather than by Arabs. Okay, and and that was very much the thinking at the time as well. And that was recognised by this man, Edwin Montague, was a cabinet minister in Lloyd George's cabinet at the time of the Balfour Declaration. He was the only Jewish member of the cabinet. He was the only Jewish member of the cabinet, and he opposed the Balfour Declaration. Mm. Uh, he basically said that this was an anti-Semitic British policy. When Jews are told that Palestine is their national home, every country will immediately desire to get rid of its Jewish citizens. And you will find a population in Palestine driving out its present inhabitants. Wow. And Jews so will hereafter... Driving out its present inhabitants. Yeah. This guy knew what would happen. Uh, he, he knew what would happen. And he predicted it, actually. It was extraordinary. Well, I think he either was extraordinary in predicting it or he knew what the agenda was behind making this promise and what the post-war plan was. Yeah, mm -hmm. But what he was also right about was Jews hereafter will hereafter be treated as foreigners in every country but Palestine. He was English. He saw himself as an Englishman. Right. He was a cabinet minister in Lloyd George's war cabinet. Later, he became a, a, a British governor in India um, after the war. And he knew that he would be treated as a Jew rather than as an Englishman once you'd given a homeland for Jews in Palestine. And he recognised that and he pleaded his case at the cabinet table. But the colonial interest dominated here. So in the end, Lloyd George, Sykes, Kitchener, uh, uh, Balfour, Churchill they were in favour of this policy that would have alienated their fellow cabinet colleague. Um, and, 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 and Montague went further. This is after the war when he was Secretary of State for India. Uh, and he, he, he wrote this memo, um, which is titled The Anti-Semitism of the Present Government. I have chosen the above title for this memorandum not in any hostile sense, not by any means as quarrelling with an anti-Semitic view which may be held by my colleagues, not with a desire to deny that anti-Semitism can be held by rational men, not even with a view to suggest that the government is deliberately anti-Semitic. But I wish to place on record my view that the policy of His Majesty's government is anti-Semitic in result and will prove a rallying ground for anti-Semites in every country in the world. You know, this is a very important argument to understand. There's, there's Somebody sent me a, a message this morning, an article by a man called Gideon Levy in Haaretz newspaper. And I'll just read it from my phone, actually. It, 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 it's uh, Levy says, an unbridled and terribly cruel attack against Gaza creates hatred of Israel at levels we've never seen before in Gaza, in the West Bank, in the Palestinian diaspora, in the Arab world, and everywhere in the world where people are seeing what the Israelis don't see and don't want to see. And that's even more terrible. And what's even more terrible is that his, this hatred will be justified. Nothing will be more justified. Gideon Levy in Haaretz. Now, there is a view that since 
the establishment of Zionism and this idea of this homeland and the occupation of Palestine that actually increased anti-Semitism. It didn't protect the Jewish people more. It increased anti-Semitism. And that's probably true in the Muslim world in the sense that because until that stage, Jewish communities and Muslim communities had lived side by side for hundreds of years without mm. issues. Mm. And then all of a sudden, there's this colonial agenda to usurp this land, and it creates tensions where there were none. And actually, Montague recognized that. He recognized it that, that actually in European countries, Jews would be seen as outsiders, even though they were French, they were German, they were British, you know, they were Swiss, but actually their home is Israel. That's what they will be told. That's Montague's understanding. Just a couple of days ago, I think the US in the US Congress, I think it was, they, uh, they voted unanimously to declare um, that criticism of Zionism is anti-Semitism. I mean, it yeah. is explicitly affirming that to criticize Israel is actually anti-Jewish, uh, uh, is, is quite extraordinary. The precise opposite uh, of, of this letter from Montague that, that saying um, that supporting Zionism is anti-Semitic. So it's interesting how things can be framed completely in op opposite ways. Absolutely, absolutely. And it sh shows how the world has changed in, in that well, hundred year period. Exactly. Yeah, indeed. Uh, if you want me to speed up, tell me, Paul, because we've, we've got quite a lot to get through. But I, 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 I'm finding I, I, when I research this, I learned a lot. So I'm hoping our audience will be I'm, learning. I like the pace and I'm learning a lot myself. So no, no, good, please continue. Good, okay. Thank you. So, so the next major issue was the, the actual fall of Jerusalem itself in the battle. The, the, these, these things were the lead up to that. And Allenby entering Jerusalem uh, on, on foot, as we mentioned. And, and, and this is... These are now these are extraordinary pictures from newspapers yeah. in the UK. Jerusalem is rescued after by the British after 673 years of Muslim rule. Uh, you know, rescued. Really, where that word comes from, God knows. Really, how the arrogance of the people that wrote that headline—unbelievable. We must be told. Americans and British invaded Iraq and so on. We're there to liberate people. Uh, yeah. And of course, the opposite happens. You, you get uh, carnage and killings on a massive scale, but they, don't, they never seem to learn. No. And, and this, Paul, you, you can probably not see it properly, but in it's almost like a watermark on the front here. It says Punch. This is the front cover of Punch magazine. Oh, really? After, oh, yeah. I didn't realise it. Was... With a picture of... Uh, King Richard, Richard, Richard the first, Richard, so-called the Lionheart, yeah, yeah. Um, who who um, went on the Crusades uh, and lost, and him staring at the Holy Land with a title saying "The Last Crusade," uh, a dream come true is what is what it says in the small print underneath that. Yeah, a dream you, come true. My dream comes comes. It says my dreams come true or my dream my comes. Dream. True. Sorry, yeah. But so, another, so, the new paper article is on the on the left. It's in the newspaper. It says, "Great rejoicing in the Christian world." So this is an explicitly Christian versus Muslim uh, event. You know, this is it's theologically framed, religiously framed in a way that would be uh, denied today. Although the undercurrent is still there, arguably. Absolutely, and and the interesting thing was when I found these uh, quotes, there was one uh, academic article which mentioned that the um, media were instructed at the outset of the war not to present 
the war on the Ottomans in civilizational terms, in religious terms, or as a crusade, because that would jeopardize two things. One was the Arab revolt, um, and and two was the the recruitment of Muslim soldiers from British in, from colonized India, basically. Um, but this became the exception to that in 1917, in December 1917. Uh, the war ends. Britain are in occupation of. Palestine of Jerusalem um, and in the uh, various peace uh, conferences after the war um, this one in in San Remo I think the San Remo conference uh, in 1920 the League of Nations gave a mandate to Britain for Palestine uh, a mandate which was scheduled to expire in 1947 so but would have been a, i guess uh 30 year mandated they occupied it in 1917 1947 13 years later um and um it, this this explicitly made the balfour declaration and the sykes pico accord part of the um legal framework now the league of nations was the forerunner to the united nations it was established by the victorious powers in world war one so if you believe in might in might is right then uh it was the uh legitimate international law uh the broker of international law at that time if you believe in anything else then it's just what the victors wanted and it has no meaning for us frankly yeah so um we have this, uh, and again, another act of gross act of betrayal at the conference where this happened. Weitzman, Chaim Weitzman, the head of the Zionist movement, was invited to, as part of a delegation, to present what they wanted to this conference. And alongside him, Faisal, the son of Sharif Hussein, who was to be promised, first of all, to be the king of Syria, and the Syrians didn't want him. So then he was the king of Iraq, uh, went along with him. And Weizmann and Faisal had signed an agreement. Faisal didn't write English, so the agreement had to be translated into Arabic here on the left-hand side in the handwriting of, uh, of Lawrence, T.E. Lawrence himself. Oh, really? Gosh. Yeah. And, and effectively, what this... Uh, what this um, uh, what this uh, uh, agreement between Faisal and Weizmann did uh, was that it it promised well it promised what was to come it promised in one of its clauses Faisal this man who is the son of a traitor who has no authority to speak on behalf of Muslims around the world agreed with Weizmann and presented this to the conference, all necessary measures shall be taken to encourage and stimulate immigration of Jews into Palestine on a large scale, and as quickly as possible to sell the Jewish, settle the Jewish immigrants upon the land through closer settlement and intensive cultivation of the soil. In taking such measures, the Arab peasant and tenant farmers shall be protected in their rights and shall be assisted in forwarding their economic development. I mean, it's breathtaking when you just see what happened and what was agreed. 
Okay. Mm. Um, but, but this is actually a forerunner to what happened. The last thing after the war was the treaties that variously led up to the abolition of the caliphate in 1924, the Sevra Treaty, which divided up the Muslim lands, and the Lausanne Treaty, uh, and eventually the Khilafah itself was abolished on the 3rd of March 1924, 100 years ago next March. So why do I say all of this in terms of Britain's colonial plan? Well, Nathaniel Curzon, Lord Curzon, who was once the uh, Viceroy of India and later the main negotiator at many of these conferences on behalf of the British government, he was a foreign secretary, um, he's explicitly said Britain's colonial plan for Palestine was for distinct military and strategic object objectives, mainly India. Uh, the, the next picture is of Allenby. Allenby basically uh, pointed out the fact that the Suez Canal, the present frontier of Egypt, is most unsatisfactory from a military point of view unless we obtain complete and permanent control of Palestine. So for Allenby, the strategic thing was actually Palestine, its proximity to Egypt and the Suez Canal. It was vital British interest to control that. And the third guy is a guy called Ronald Storrs, who was a military governor of, um, of Jerusalem and a British diplomat who wrote in, in one book called Orientations and in another book I've got here, which I'll show you in just a moment, uh, where he said Britain, what its policy was, was they wanted a little loyal Jewish Ulster. Okay. Um, now, uh, actually, Paul, can you take off the presentation a second? Uh, yeah, yeah. I got this this week. Um, it's, it's a very thin book, uh, which is from their kind of uh, antiqua antiquarian book um, store, written by Ronald Storrs, titled Lawrence of Arabia, Zionism and Palestine. Very interestingly, uh, here, this is in Arabic, and it's a seal which says al-Hakim al-Askari, the head of the armies or the the soldiers, bil Qudr al-Sharif in uh, in uh, the Holy Jerusalem, and then in the middle it says R with a Ra, Nur in in Arabic. Okay. Uh, and it's a seal, I think, as when, and I presume on the back cover, that's the same, presume, oh, presume that's the same thing in Hebrew, yeah? Um, now, Storrs was a very good friend of Lawrence, so this has kind of got some correspondence between the two of them. It's got letters that they wrote to each other, um, wow. and then it's got his memoirs about Zionism and what, you know, um, what what that was all about from his perspective and he says you know there's the the staunch zionists from the from the from the, the jewish zionists and then there are the, the staunch anti-zionists who will be the palestinians and then in between you'll have people who view their britain's mandate is what they want to uphold and they're thinking about that and and, and then there'll be a very small number of people who are disinterested i only got it this week so i haven't read it but I, what i did find is that that same quote of a Little Loyal Jewish Ulster is is actually mentioned in this book as well. Fascinating. It's actually a very succinct summary, uh, actually, of, of that perspective. Of course, Northern Ireland, what was a, a you know a place driven by incredible religious and sectarian conflict for for, for decades, uh, and so it's hardly a, a great uh, example, is it, of um, 
successful policy. It's not. And and, and in fact, if if people don't, Ulster is one of the provinces in Northern Ireland. Ireland is predominantly Irish, Catholic. Ireland is predominantly Irish. What a stupid thing to say. Ireland is predominantly Catholic. Ireland is all Irish. Um, But Ireland is predominantly Catholic. And uh, Britain, which was the occupying power, is predominantly Protestant. And uh, the British facilitated uh, Protestants, really extreme Protestants from Scotland. Scotland mainly, to to go over to Ulster and settle there. So that by the time the the Irish had struggled for their freedom from the British colonialists, uh, Britain could argue, well, we have to remain to keep this small Protestant uh, province, Protestantly dominant province of of Ulster, as part of Northern Ireland, which would be part of the United Kingdom. So that was their way of keeping their colonial footprint on the island, on the island of Ireland. Um, So, yeah, so we'll go back to the uh, presentation, if that's all right. Yes. So so this was stored. So this was the colonial agenda. And actually, you know, 70 odd, 70 to 100 years later, America is the colonial power. And this was a quote just in the last two months by U.S. politician, descendant of uh, Robert Kennedy, uh, yeah. uh, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Um, and in one famous interview recently, he said, Israel is a bulwark for us. It's almost like having an aircraft carrier in the Middle East. Uh, and, you know, if Israel disappears, then Russia, China and the BRICS countries will control 90% of the oil in the world. And that will be cataclysmic for the US. So you have this colonial agenda, you have this Zionist agenda. They're working together in symbiosis. But there's also a tension. There is a tension here. Um, and the tension is uh, explained by Curzon writing to Balfour, both for one foreign secretary, one a formal foreign secretary. Um, and Weizmann, Curzon says, contemplates, the leader of the World Zionist Movement, contemplates a Jewish state, a Jewish nation, a subordinate population of Arabs, and was trying to affect this behind the screen under the shelter of British trusteeship. So Weizmann is going to the British saying, look, we'll be your colony, we'll be your interest in the Middle East, but actually his agenda is to have a state of their own which is independent. And and that has played out till today. So at the time of 1947, 1948, sorry, when Israel usurped the land and Ben-Gurion was the leader, Ben-Gurion was willing to play ball with the British um, and the Americans. But there were other Zionists then who were considered more extreme, who actually went on to um, uh, argue that, no, the whole of the land is ours. And we'll, this is an important thing to remember as we move forward, because this is how the colony was eventually created. The British Mandate era, 1920 through to 1947, 1948, sorry, my mistake. Um, I made a mistake earlier. I said it finished in 1947, but it didn't. It finished in 1948. This is the demographics of the Jewish population of Palestine. 1882, 24,000. Uh, 1914, with the help of Sultan Abdul Hamid, it up to 94,000. By the end of the war, not sure why the population's gone down to 60,000. Unexpected, okay. but yeah. Yeah, but, but it, it could be that they have moved to other places within the Ottoman Khilafah because there were Jewish communities in other, com- other, other cities. So this is just of Palestine. But 
Britain has taken over in 1917, where there's approximately 60,000. Once it takes over its mandate, look how it is basically bringing in European Jews. That 60,000 goes up to 716,000 by 1948. All right. If the Alien Act of 1905 was their stop the boats policy, this was their Rwanda policy. Right. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, those of you who don't know, in the mo- at the moment in Britain, when people are refugees arriving in the UK from fleeing persecution in other places in the world, Britain currently has a plan where it wants to send those people to be rehoused in Rwanda in East Africa. Okay. And so it doesn't want them in Britain. So it's sending them to Rwanda and paying the Rwandans to do that. Well, Jews in Europe were being persecuted. And instead of giving them shelter in Europe, Britain's policy was let's ship them all to Palestine. That's how anti-Semitic this policy was, basically. And I, yes, there were a small number of Zionist Jews who were pushing for that because the Zionist Federation was not the largest world body of Jewry. Um, But there would have been many Jews persecuted in Europe who just wanted shelter somewhere and were being promised a home somewhere, and they would have had no idea what was going on. Mm. Added to this, in 1948, once war breaks out in the Middle East, there is, and and even even before that, there are tensions that are starting to exist in Jewish communities in Egypt, in Iraq, in Syria, in other places where they have lived happily. Some of those tensions are fueled by Zionists. So, Professor Avi Schlein, who I really think you should get on this show one day if you can. Yeah, he, he's he's an encyclopedia. He's a, he's an Israeli historian who is originally, he calls himself an Arab Jew because he was born and grew up in Baghdad. He said socially, culturally, we were completely integrated with other Arabs. Um, But then there were attacks on Jews in Baghdad, which meant that these Jewish population end up migrating to Israel. And what he's discovered through his research is that those attacks were actually done by Zionist terrorists to create dissent in these countries so that people would end up migrating to Israel and boost the Jewish population there. So this was, now imagine the tension that this demographic change would create. Uh, Imagine the tension even more so when the British authority in Palestine is allowing the Jews to organize politically and to some extent militarily, but not the Palestinians. David Ben-Gurion was appointed the chairman of the executive Jewish agency between 1935 and 1948. So the Jewish community in Palestine, the migrant Jewish community, was allowed to organize politically. So that in 1948, when the British mandate would end, they were effectively a government in waiting. But Churchill himself in 1922 says, we must not allow such a thing as a representative government to happen in Palestine. And Sir Martin Gilbert, a British historian, says the centerpiece of British policy was that Britain would hold representative institutions to Palestinian as, Palestinians as long as there was an Arab majority. So it was kind of changing the demographics and penalizing one community and empowering another, both politically and militarily, so that by the time uh, 1948 comes, the British mandate ends, there's an unequal relationship between the Jewish population 
and the, the migrant Jewish population, I can I should say, because actually the resident Jewish population didn't particularly want all of this to happen, uh, you know, in, in, in this period. Um, the, the, the balance had shifted, there was tensions existing, conflict existing, and the Zionists organized militias. The most famous one was called the Haganah, which was fighting Palestinians and the British. Ben-Gurion was the head of this. Uh, a group broke off from the Haganah to a more extreme faction called the Irgun, and an even more extreme faction called Lehi, or the Stern Gang, uh, uh, was broke off from Irgun. And they were effectively terrorist groups. I mean, Irgun and Lehi blew up the King David Hotel, which was the home of British soldiers in the Mandate era Palestine. Okay, this same hotel is where Rishi Sunak stayed recently, where uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, stayed recently. And nobody sought to mention the fact that this hotel was once uh, bombed by these people. Um, so they, they were making war on Arabs. They were making war on the British at the time. Uh, and they were organizing politically. Uh, the Leahy group, even, the Sterngrand group, even, um, believe it or not, had some relationship with Nazis in Europe um, because they thought that they would be able to get help from them. Uh, the colonialists didn't care about the injustices. I know you've shared this quote before, Paul, but it's, it's worth understanding. Wilson Churchill addressing the Peel Commission in 1937. The Peel Commission was set up because the tensions were so bad in Palestine. And you can see the migration um, uh, in 1937 had gone to 300,000. And the Peel Commission kind of recommended that it should be slowed down a little bit because it, it, it's creating too much tension. But, but, but Churchill's great. I do not admit that the dog in a manger reference to the Palestinian people has the final right to the manger, even though he may have lain there for a very long time. I don't admit for an instance that a great wrong has been done to the Red Indians of America, meaning the indigenous people of America, or the black people of Australia, the indigenous people of Australia. I do not think the Red Indians had any right to say the American continent belongs to us and we're not going to have any of these European settlers coming in here. They had not the right, nor, they had, nor had they the power. Well, I don't think they were saying we're not going to have any of these European settlers coming here. I think they were saying that we don't want to be wiped out by these European settlers. It's, it's interesting. And, Sorry, just at the date of that, this is in 1937, a couple of years, yeah. two years before World War II broke out. And, of yeah. course, we, we see Winston Churchill as the great defender of freedom and liberty over against the racist Nazis. Now, that's how we understand it now. But Winston Churchill himself, just two years beforehand, was saying something that we would, if we didn't know who wrote that, we could easily associate with uh, a kind of German national socialist view, if you like, one of the superiority of the white race, that our right to subjugate and colonize other people and genocide them. And it's interesting that Churchill has views which are not that dissimilar, we would think, with Nazi views in terms of you know, the, the white supremacist right to occupy and exterminate other people. It's just as ironic that, that Churchill himself uh, is perceived quite differently from the historical reality you've just quoted. I think uh, if, okay, let me, let me give a little bit of uh, balance to this, because I think Churchill would have seen this more in civilizational terms. So even though the Nazis were white, um, and by the way, a lot of, lot of, uh, a lot of uh, right wing uh, British people in politics in the, in, in the 1930s were, were very favorable towards Mussolini, for example, fascists in 
in Italy. Um, yeah. And actually, some of them didn't have a problem with Hitler even. So famously, King uh, Edward VIII, the, the king who abdicated, the, the late queen's great uncle, no, not great uncle, uncle, the late queen's uncle, was had a very good relationship with Hitler. So, so, but, but I think Churchill would have seen this in civilizational terms because he believed that um, the Europeans who migrated to America or to Australia effectively were a higher civilization than the indigenous people. And actually, this is an important quote uh, because it will explain why, despite seeing a genocide in Gaza, politicians and the political class, the establishment media, uh, are not calling this out as a genocide. They they think the Palestinians are expendable. And you know who's playing into that? Isaac Herzog, the colonial president of the Zionist occupying power in Palestine, who said this week that this is war. It's not a war. It's a massacre. Uh, it's not only a war between Israel and Hamas. It is a war that is intended really, truly to save Western civilization and to save the values of Western civilization, right? Well, he clearly thinks an apartheid state in the Middle East is the values of Western civilization. He's he clearly wrong. thinks... He's not wrong, he's not wrong though, He's not he? wrong. He's not wrong. <laughs> he's, and that's why he's I'm right. saying it. He is right. So just as it was Western civilization in South Africa, it's Western civilization in the Middle East. And exactly. he clearly thinks that genocide in Gaza is Western civilization which yeah. is not wrong because genocide was committed on the indigenous peoples of the North American continent and in Austra Australia. So, so he's not wrong, but he's kind of appealing to the world in civilizational terms. Yeah. And he clearly sees, he clearly sees, he's trying. Now, herein lies the tension because a lot of people who watch the politics of the Middle East know that the last few years there's been tension between Netanyahu and Obama. And actually, you know, there was quite a good relationship with Trump, but there's been tension between Netanyahu and Biden. In the end, the tension is because the majority of the Israeli political class believes in a one state that will dominate the region and the Palestinians are nowhere. And the colonial powers in the world believe in two states and that, the, their, that their colony should stay under their control. That is, but fundamentally, they don't want the Zionist occupiers to lose, they don't want to lose control of them. It's happened before. Uh, the United States, what is today the United States, was once a series of colonies of Britain, of France, of Holland, of Spain, wasn't yeah. it? New York was once New Amsterdam. It was. Uh, it was a Dutch colony called New Amsterdam. Uh, yeah. And eventually, the, the colonial residents of Britain in North America decided they didn't want Britain's control over them. They wanted to break free. Well, 70 years down the line, 75 years down the line, the colonial residents of Palestine don't want to be dictated to by their dominating power all the time. So you do have this tension playing out these days uh, between what the Americans want, what the West wants, and what the Israelis themselves want. Uh, and this is, this is uh, uh, Herzog basically trying to appeal to the West, saying, oh, you know, we are your colonial slaves here. This is to say... 
Where, where is he from originally, this chap? I mean, he's not, uh, presumably he wasn't born in Jerusalem. Where, where is he from? He looks quite European. So I, I, I've, I've, oh dear, I've heard he's from Ireland. You're okay. kidding me. He might have been born in, uh, in Palestine, yeah? Mm. Uh, he might have been born in Palestine, but his father, I think, was lived in Ireland. Um, he's Irish, an but, Irish... Okay. So, so I mean, look, Netanyahu. When Netanyahu speaks, he, he's American, isn't he? You can hear it in his voice. When, yeah. um, when um, uh, Mark Regev, his his advisor and spokesman, speaks, you can hear he's Australian. Uh, when um, who else is there? When a couple of their spokesmen speaks, they sound like they're from London. Um, so yeah. I mean, these are all these... white Western colonial. They don't look. I mean, you showed me those photographs earlier on of the Jews and the Arabs by by the 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 remaining wall of the of the temple in Jerusalem, and you said they were indistinguishable culturally from each other, the Jews and the Muslims yeah. in in Jerusalem. Absolutely. And this was just a hundred years ago or or less. And this and it had been like that presumably for centuries, but now the the Zionists look very much and behave very much like. Westerners, they behave like yes. Europeans or Americans. Yes. So completely different from uh, the indigenous uh, people on the Arab world. Uh, I, yes. don't, I don't suppose they, they even speak Arabic, but uh, yeah. So, so actually, I've, I've just looked it up, and Herzog himself was born in um, in 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 what is called Tel Aviv today. Okay, which was I think Yaffa, um, yeah. but his father was born in Belfast. So is British uh, or Irish or whatever you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. His father was born in Belfast. He he himself, his father was a a politician before him. Uh, so yeah, so that gives you some idea of of the colonial background of these people. Nineteen forty-seven. The British are having problems with what to do, what to do, what to do, and you know, end of World War One, World War Two, nineteen forty-five. Uh, the League of Nations hasn't really worked out, so the. The victorious powers in World War One, they set up the United Nations. Uh, they have their five permanent members of the Security Council, the United States, Britain, France, Russia, and China, uh, who have a veto on everything. And just this weekend, we've seen the United States veto calls for a ceasefire in Palestine, uh, in it's Gaza. The in the world, I think, that actually voted against uh, yeah. a, a ceasefire. Britain abstained, of course, being uh, shamefully... Uh, as well, so it, it's re remarkable that, that America's literally giving the green light to further mass killings in, yeah. in Palestine, quite explicitly, because that's what's happening. Yeah. So the British decide, look, we're, we're, this is too much of a headache for us sorting this out between, you know, Arabs and Jews, uh, and we're getting caught in the crossfire. Uh, let's hand it over to the UN, um, and um, the UN decides this should be the partition plan. The areas in green should be a Jewish state and the areas in orange should be an Arab state and Jerusalem should be internationalized. Um, and that, to me, looks like a recipe for disaster, even if everyone had agreed to it. Yeah. How you have one country divided up into three like this. So the orange areas are completely disconnected from each other. Right. Uh, and yet the, the, the Jewish population argued that this narrow strip here, which allowed the 
the, the, the Jewish areas to communicate with each other. And this narrow strip here, we're just too vulnerable. Okay, so they argued that this was this was too vulnerable for them, although they had contiguous land and the Arabs did not. Uh, so this this is an absurd, absurd uh, idea that this could work. Hmm. 19, the 5th, 15th of May, 1948, the British mandate was set to, set to expire. So on the 14th of May, the Zionists declared their own state unilaterally. Okay. Uh, and remember, they've already organized politically. They've already organized militarily as well. Um, and on the same day, the United States uh, acknowledged, recognized them as a new state. I think, it was, I think it was in 10 or 11 minutes, famously, isn't it? The, the, yeah. the declaration was made within literally 10 minutes. Uh, America recognized it, the first in the world, interestingly. It, it was. And, and Ben-Gurion had been to America to lobby them before this. And a few days later, the Soviet Union recognized it. Uh, and then eventually, after almost a year of fighting, um, uh, the uh, new state of Israel, as it was called, was admitted to the United Nations. Now, this is important to understand. Ben-Gurion was actually quite a left-wing guy. He was he was somebody who, who had some respect for communism and and socialism, uh, and and uh, and and so probably would have been seen as a prime target for the Soviet Union in those days. So Ironic. you've got these international rivalries. So you you can understand why both sides want to recognize this new entity because they're both sides are thinking. Hmm, maybe maybe they can be an agent for us in the region. Interesting. Yeah, so this is this is the headline from one of the newspapers, the Chicago Daily, about sometimes uh, the, it's still going strong. Uh, actually, in, in this, it's the popular uh, newspaper in Chicago today. Even. Is it? Oh, really? Yeah, okay. I, I, I read it. Yeah, when I go there. Yeah, so, you're yeah. more you're better travelled than me. Well, if if, if Traveling to Chicago means I'd better travel than you. <laughs> I think you don't just travel to Chicago these days. <laughs> oh, I, I, I've been to I've been to Scotland. <laughs> okay. Okay, just got <laughs> so so back to back to tragedy rather yeah. than trivial. Yeah. We, we we come to the what happened in 1948. Um, let's go back to this map. Um, the Zionists knew that this is unworkable for them. So they had a plan uh, to effectively seize areas that would make uh, effectively uh, huge areas in this in this uh, in this um, green area more workable for them. So they they started to attack villages uh, in areas, and and they did it in such a ruthless way that. The aim was to terrorize the Palestinian population. And people, it got to the stage where it was so ruthless. Women were, were, were dishonored. Men were killed in the most brutal way. That The idea was that the next time those same Zionist militias went into, terrorists went into uh, other villages, people would just leave. They would just be too scared, so they would leave. And, and so started the Nakba. The, the catastrophe, which led to uh, between 750 and 900,000 uh, Palestinian men, women, and children driven out of their homes 
and an estimated 500 villages and towns were depopulated and demolished. And, um, you know, these images look eerily familiar today when we're looking at the roads in Gaza. Uh, Can I just recommend a, a book? Um, I was recommending this, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine by a very distinguished historian uh, at the University of Exeter here in the UK, Ilan Pape, professor of history. Um, and what I like about this is that he documents what you're talking about, but using uh, Israeli historical sources. The sources, you know, this, this is all well documented. It's not speculation. Uh, it's all factual and very we have primary historical evidence uh, for this. And the intention, that he argues, the intention from the beginning of Zionism uh, was to ethnically cleanse Palestine. This is not a, an idea that kind of occurred later. This was the intention right from the beginning, as, as you're uh, showing us as well. So um, most historians today, Zionists, post-Zionists and non-Zionists agree that at least 120 uh, of the 530 villages were expelled by Jewish military forces. This should remind people of what's happening in the West Bank today. So the West, the, the, the settlers in the West Bank have been armed with assault rifles, and they are currently, as we speak, going into Palestinian villages in the West Bank and threatening to kill the residents of those villages if they do not leave and empty their villages within a certain deadline. And the IDF troops back them in that. So this is all what we've seen in the Nakba of 1948. It's happening today, ladies and gentlemen. It is happening today. Very, very true. And it's actually covered in the media uh, as well, in some of the media. But imagine if Putin had done this in Ukraine. Imagine the outcry, the sanctions, uh, the moral indignation uh, and, and the and the military uh, you know, opposition to, to Putin that would happen. But because I think obviously it's Palestinians, uh, uh, it's a very, very different set of standards, even though the West proclaims an international rule-based order, it only really applies in, when their interests are at stake, not really universally or consistently across the board. Absolutely. So... Uh, one of the most famous massacres, which is a tragedy, is called the Deir Yassin massacre, where literally, I mean, it was it it ha it was so brutal, it was so so brutal that effectively it, it had this effect, which which a lot of other Arabs were, were fearing for the their their their, their families, so they they would end up leaving and evacuating. Um, th there's a there's a movie that describes the 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 there's a video online, it's called Tantura, which describes what happened in the Nakba. There are these awful, awful uh, eyewitness um, interviews with, with Zionist soldiers who are old men now, who describe with great relish how they used to murder, mutilate, rape Palestinians um, when they were young men in these massacres. Uh, it, it's really quite ugly to see them you'll see a lot of them people share them on twitter these days they're very upsetting and and these guys that like i say that they're old men and they're very proud of what they did they have no shame in it it's like they enjoyed it um from 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 their own operatives they described it as a pogrom house after house we were putting explosives in and they're running away, an explosion happens, and they move, we move on. Explosion and more move on. Within a few hours, half the village isn't there anymore.
I stood them against the wall, two Arab girls of 16 or 17, and blasted them with two rounds from a Tommy gun. The young fellow tied to a tree and set on fire. A woman and an old man shot in the back. They piled bodies and burned them. Uh, Palestinians were forced out of their homes. Some moved to Gaza. Some moved to what is today the West Bank. Some were into refugee camps. Some into Jordan. Some into Syria. Some into Lebanon. Some into Egypt. To forever live there in most of these countries as second-class citizens. And you've already quoted Ilan Pape as saying this was an ethnic cleansing, was a systematic, comprehensive process that began in 1948 and continues today. And continuation of a process of colonization that began in the late 19th century. And it, what we are seeing in Gaza and the West Bank today is a continuation of that. And it's so important to get the historical context of that rather than thinking that it all began October the 7th or something. It didn't. Uh, uh, absolutely <laughs> right. And, 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 and so this is where the Zionist endgame and the colonial endgame are slightly different. They are symbiotic, but what's happened? These terror organizations have morphed into political parties. Ergun became Likud, literally became Likud. The leaders of Ergun became the leaders of Likud. This is Menachem Begum who was one of the leaders of Likud, who was also one of the leaders of Ergun. Uh, the Stern Gang, or Lehi, one of the other former Israeli prime ministers, Yitzhak Shamir, was a member of the Stern Gang. So th these Shamir and, and Begin would have once been seen as terrorists who could have been prosecuted in the UK, uh, but they, they became political leaders who were instead welcomed into the UK. The impact goes on today. Uh, the po politics in Israel, these are headlines which were before October the 7th. But, you know, this headline in Haaretz, the guy is writing in the context of where Israeli society is very deeply divided between the religious right wing and the secular. The ones who oppose Netanyahu's attempts to change the judicial system to protect politicians, and the ones who uh, are supporting him because they like what he's doing in the country otherwise. But what this headline guy writer has written is killing children brings Israelis together. That when there are attacks on Palestinians, it somehow it seems to unite both sides of that political divide. And in fact, estimates of the Time magazine put estimates down of what uh, Israelis currently think about the level of force that's being used in Gaza. And the overwhelming majority think it's either not enough or about right. The Israeli president tells us that there are no innocent civilians in Gaza. The United States is providing arms and assault rifles which are getting used in the West Bank by, by settlers. It's not just that there's a report uh, that the, the British, we have a military base in Cyprus uh, and uh, uh, re regular RAF um, sorties are, are going to Israel to help arm uh, Israel. So uh, we're actually involved in this war directly, although the British media, by and large, are a bit completely silent on this, although it is actually a fact um, it has been uncovered. So Britain is involved in this war directly as well. 
Very much so. And and you can tell that through the attitude of the British media. It, it's really lost all sense of balance and proportion. It literally takes what the IDF says and just publishes it to the public, basically. Um, we have seen over the years the United States wanting to achieve its two-state solution uh, by recruiting the Arab rulers, uh, Wars happen and then peace happens. And in the peace, the betrayal becomes obvious. So um, uh, th this is the uh, King Hussein of Jordan, Gamal Abdel Nasser from Egypt, before the 1967 war. Uh, uh, and then in, in 1973, when Egypt and Syria decided they're going to launch a war on Israel, Jordan's king, and he is not at that stage, there's no peace agreement between Jordan and Israel. Jordan's king establishes contact with Golda Meir, the prime minister of Israel, and tells her, oh, by the way, Egypt and Syria are going to attack soon. He actually, that's documented historical fact. After Nasser, Sadat takes over, and the Camp David agreement, he makes peace with Begin, so the first Arab country to officially recognize. Years later, after the Second Intifada, uh, Jordan, Jordan uh, has its peace deal. Uh, Arafat, as leaders of the Palestinian entity, ends up making peace and recognizing the Zionist occupiers uh, as, as a legitimate state. All these so-called peace processes are there to surrender the land. Uh, the Oslo Agreement, 1993, this is what Oslo did to the West Bank. So the West Bank, which is supposedly a Palestinian area, and, and Israeli settlers have started moving in. Well, the Oslo Agreement, which the Arab leaders, the Palestinian Authority, the Jordanians, all, buyed up, so, um, all agreed to, set the area into three administrative zones. The orange, which would only be administrated by Israel, the 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 dark uh, the the light grey which would be administered by the Palestinian Authority and the 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 dark blue grey which would be basically administered by the Palestinian Authority but the Israeli security would be allowed in there. Okay, this was agreed in the peace processes that everyone around the world says it's like a great success. This is betrayal of the Palestinian people. Uh, this is just going into that in more detail, which people can read later. But this is this is criminal. And then Trump comes in with his Abraham Accords. And what he does is he decides, you know what, if we keep trying to get the Palestinians on board to surrender more and more and more of their land, it's not going to work. So let's do this. Let's get our clients and puppets in the other Arab countries to make direct peace deals with Israel. Let's make the incentive that it will improve their economies, tourism, all kinds of wealth for everyone. And uh, that in itself will drive change in the region. And so the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, Oman, Sudan, the governments of these countries signed up to these Abraham Accords. Uh, actually, we could see before what happened on the 7th of October, the, and by the way, none of these guys, whether Jordan, whether these countries, whether Egypt, whether Turkey, that have already got relations, none of these guys have expelled their ambassadors 
or cut off their trade relations or try to, try to cut off their diplomatic and security and intelligence cooperation since the 7th of October. Mm, yeah. Um, in the run-up to the 7th of October, Netanyahu went to the uh, um, UN. Yeah. He gave a speech. All the talk is how Saudi is going to do its peace deal. Netanyahu holds up this map of a new Middle East yeah. where he talks about Egypt, Sudan, Saudi Arabia, and there's Israel in the middle. There is no Palestine on this map. No, that's the most, they talk about ethnic cleansing, you know, on a mega scale. You know, he completely obliterates any mention of Palestine or Palestinians at all. And he's given lip service uh, sometimes in the past to a two-state solution. Clearly, his new Middle, a Middle East doesn't include Palestinians at all. Um, this is a complete takeover. It, it, and it, it, this, it, what you've just said, Paul, really explains a lot. What they say to the world in terms of two states and in terms of human rights and we're trying to protect civilians and what they say within their own politics, which is actually available to all of us to read and see, is two different things. And the actions bear out the latter. The actions don't yeah. bear out the lies that they tell the world. So this is... A famous series of infographics which describes how Palestine started in uh, in the uh, 1917, and how land was given to Jewish communities, and how the UN proposed a partition. And after the first war in 48, Israel managed to achieve its objective of getting a contiguous land. And after the second uh, war in 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 six in the next war in 67. Um, it, it took control of the West Bank from Jordan. And then over time, through the different peace negotiations, we've seen the, the balkanization of the West Bank into an unworkable setup. And this, on, this map is really closest to what a two-state solution would look like for the Palestinians. And this is what Netanyahu, not Netanyahu, just Netanyahu, the entire Almost the entire, I would say 90% of the Israeli political class believes in Eretz Yisrael, the greater Israel, which would include some of Sino, which would include some of Jordan, which would oh, yeah. include some of Syria and some yeah. of Lebanon. Lebanon. Oh, yeah. The greater Israel is, is much bigger than the current setup. Yeah. 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 I mean, they, 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 they talk about the West Bank as being Judea and Samaria. They, that's what they talk about. And, and so this, this is the current model for a two-state solution, which that's what the rest West Bank would look like. So the Palestinian people would get about 15 to 20% of historic Palestine, and it would be divided up in an utterly unworkable way. Mm -hmm. There's a wall surrounding the West Bank. There's settlements encroaching into the West Bank. These settlements, they're not villages, they're entire towns and cities they look like this you can be driving for 15 20 minutes and see this built up area built in palestinian land uh the israelis fight on three levels to occupy this land they fight in the way they're fighting in gaza to ethnically cleanse the region they fight in the way they're fighting in the west bank to clear villages village by village and they fight house by house in places like jerusalem and Hebron, where they try and demolish houses through ridiculous planning rules. Uh, and we saw this in Al-Quds a couple of years back in Sheikh Jarrah, which people will remember 
how this neighborhood was being seized and settlers were going in. We're hearing about this in other cities, in towns in 1948 Palestine, what's called Israel today, in the town of Lod, which is a very mixed community, and settlers are going and marking houses with paint so that these will be targeted by settlers to take over. It's interesting. We it reminds see- me, sorry, in the 1930s in Germany, how uh, the Nazis went around Jewish shops and homes and put... Uh, uh, you know, the Star of David or other marker on them to clearly identify uh, Jew- Jewish businesses or homes. And obviously that then they were removed and deported and so on. And there's the same kind of thing now. Uh, and ironically, by the victims have now become those who do Nazi-like things by identifying um, Arabs, Palestinians, indigenous people for removal. It's extraordinary. The power, the historical parallels are extraordinary. The, the, the historical parallels are there. and But... But to talk about them invites the criticism of anti-Semitism because of what the Nazis did to Jews and then making these comparisons is 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 offensive, is what is said. And and but but yet I'm, I'm talking about how accurate they are. Well, well, no, no, but, but it is it is a problem and it illustrates right. that that yeah. how criticism of Israel is being silenced by when people raise valid historical comparisons. Mm. Yeah, if it's if the, if history is an offence, it causes offence. Then that's regrettable. But historical facts can be offensive, and if the parallels are real and tangible and and obvious, to point them out is uh, not being offensive. It is to, to to think intelligently about our world and notice similarities. And and you know, but we we must have to, we have to deal with that. If it's offensive, then we have to deal with that offence and not suppress it and pretend that it's somehow evil to mention these obvious parallels in history is not that, that it, it is the way it is the way it is unfortunately so um thank you for that, that um, I, I, then we have what's been happening in Al-Masjid military raids regularly um tear gas rubber bullets even during the month of Ramadan where it's packed uh, men women children elderly beaten with truncheons um there is an organization called the Temple Mount Foundation, which is pushing for more and more settler invasions into Al-Masjid Aqsa. Now, th- there's a concept on in the holy sites called the status quo. So officially, in UN terms, uh, Al-Masjid Aqsa is under the authority of the Jordanians. Yeah. Okay? Um, and no... Jews are allowed to go there to worship. But in the last years, what has happened is that status quo has been pushed and stretched and stretched. So first of all, allowing Zionist settlers in to visit, uh, and then in greater and greater and greater numbers. This article headline came from uh, a year or two ago. It said, in the year 2000, 1,000 Jews visited Al-Aqsa uh, on the, the Sunday before this headline was published. 2,600 visited on that one day. Okay. Uh, and in, visiting, uh, in the last week, I, I remember that there was some quite aggressive militant Zionists uh, pushing into to doing it again, taking advantage of, of what's going on at the moment. And, and, and this is important because this is backed, although it's a foundation that claims it's independent, this is backed by. Uh, the Israeli government in in 2013. This is from an article that 
uh, brother Kareem Dennis wrote, uh, Loki, known as Loki, the rapper. He wrote an article a few years ago saying, in 2013, an investigation by Israeli Army Radio revealed that young women, young women hoping to avoid compulsory military service are given the choice to become part of the Temple Mount movement instead, working as unpaid tour guides for the Temple Institute or in schools for advocating the rebuilding of the temple in uh, the place of Al-Aqsa. So this is actually a uh, funded by the Israeli government. And actually, more than that, um, the, the, I got these quotes from the, the same article and from one on uh, uh, electronic intifada, where it make, mentions that the Israeli ambassador to the UK, Zippy Hotelevli, Hotelevli, I think that's how you say it, she has supported this movement and stated it's her dream to see the Israeli flag flying over Al-Aqsa. Okay. Uh, US billionaire Henry Swiker is a major funder of the Temple Mount movement. And through his Swiker Family Foundation, he's pumped money into that, into the Friends of the IDF and mm -hmm. the David Horowitz Center, which has employed Tommy Robinson as well as Ben Shapiro. Uh, and uh, Yisrael Ariel, the chief rabbi of the Temple Mount movement, said, if Muslims and Christians raise the flag of surrender and say, from now on, there's no more Christianity, no more Islam, and the mosques and Christian spires come down, then they would be allowed to live. If not, you will kill all of their males by sword. You will leave only the women. And we will conquer Iraq, Turkey, and we'll get Iran too. That's the kind of rhetoric that these people believe in. So... Uh, there are there are controls over Palestine through water. Christians face persecution. Earlier this year, there were reports of Christian visitors, even from the US and Europe, being spat on by settlers. In in Gaza, churches have been bombed. Churches where Christian Palestinians from Gaza have sought refuge have been bombed. The siege of Gaza started in 2007. These statistics are from before the genocide started, 70% of those people living there are refugees. There's like a 42% unemployment. 98% of groundwater is undrinkable. They only, they only get about two to four hours of continuous electrical power a day. A lot of the arable land is made unavailable to them. Uh, waters are, are blocked due to security, the Israeli security zones. 7% of children suffer from stunted growth and 60% are anemic. Uh, that is the reality of what people are living. And you can see its origins in the colonialism and the Zionism that happens today. We, Paul, um, have an alternative. We believe that the message of Allah said that when the Khilafah returns, that its capital will be after him in Medina, and then to Asham, and then to Iraq, and then to Constantinople, and then to Beit al-Maqdis in Jerusalem. And if it reaches Beit al-Maqdis, it will have reached its natural resting place, and no people who remove it from their land will ever get it back again. So it will be the capital of the Khilafah, and the Islamic civilization is the only civilization that has allowed Muslims, Jews, Christians, and others to live side by side in harmony with justice and security for all. And that should be a sense of hope for us, a sense of pride for us, an aim for us for the future. Um, 
which will bring much needed restoration of peace and justice and harmony to the region. And that the Al-Masya Al-Aqsa will be liberated once again. And I just put this up just to remind everyone that the whole of this compound is Al-Aqsa, the Nibali Masjid, of which I've got a photograph of me behind me here, and the Dome of the Rock are just buildings within that compound of Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa. It is not that one is at the Masjid Al-Aqsa and the other one is not. They're all part of Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa. Yeah, yeah. yeah, indeed. Well, thank you very much. It was extremely interesting uh, and clear uh, and lucid, uh, uh, actually, a narrative exposition of this uh, amazing uh, historical moment we're living in, what, why these things are happening now. There's a deep historical context, as you've uh, explained. We really need to remember that and grasp that rather than think that suddenly violence happened on October the 7th out of nowhere, unprovoked, uh, you know, without any context. It's clearly not the case. We're, we're dealing with systematic colonization and ethnic cleansing and so on over many, many years. Uh, unfortunately. So thank you very much uh, indeed, uh, Dr. Abdul Wahid, for your time, your expertise and your lucidity as always, and eloquence. Uh, hugely beneficial uh, to me and I'm sure to uh, the viewers as well. So thank you. Thank you for having me, Paul. And inshallah, we'll meet again, inshallah. Until next time. Assalamualaikum. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.